we have been involved in a series of lessons this year entitled Move. And we chose that theme because coming out of last year, a year of this pandemic, we thought hopefully in 2021 we can move beyond. And of course, uh, the pandemic has held on. I mean, it, it still is here. Uh, I was telling several people this morning, I went and got my third shot this week. And so uh, I'm grateful that, that I could do that, just kind of, as I tell people, to protect myself and to protect you. And so, uh, but uh, it's been a challenging year. And uh, it's, it's not over yet. We still have some challenges ahead of us. But we began the year by looking at David and looking at some of his psalms and how he moved out of difficult times into a closer relationship with God. We then looked at Jesus and how Jesus helped people to move from situations they were in at the moment to being in a relationship with God. And, and for the last several weeks, we've been working through Romans. And today we come to Romans 7. Jeff read just a little portion of it a few moments ago. Now let me say something about Romans 7. Romans 7 is one of the most dense writings of the Apostle Paul. Peter would say in his second epistle that Paul writes in some of his letters things that are hard to understand. Can we all amen that? I mean, Brother Peter got it right. And when you get to Romans 7, you're like, wow. In fact, you start reading it, and after a while, you're like, man, this is like a ping pong tournament going on. Just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and it can cause you to kind of throw up your hands and say, I don't know what he's talking about in that chapter. Well, we're going to try to, read, uh, to wade into that chapter today, and I hope that when you leave, you've got a better understanding of what Paul was trying to say to us. Now, first of all, do you have your Bibles this morning? Would you hold them up? Have we got our Bibles? I hope you do, because I want you to underline some things and highlight some things and notice some things in the text that I think will help you understand what Paul's trying to do in this very, very important passage in his epistle. Now, what's fascinating about Romans 7 is that while we have our Bibles, Romans 7 is actually about the Torah, the Old Testament. Basically, what Paul is dealing with in this particular chapter is what was Jews to do with that major part of our Bible that was the only Bible that they had. If you're a Jew and you've come to believe in Jesus... What is Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? You know what I mean. All the way through the book of Malachi. What are you supposed to do now with that text? Something that had guided them for over a thousand years. And so Paul is going to try and help them understand why God gave us what we call the Old Testament, what its purpose was, and what our relationship to it now is. And so let's wade into the text. He begins by pointing out the obvious. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the Torah has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Now I'm going to call it the Torah. Torah is the way the Jews would call it. The Hebrew people would call it. That's the word for law in, in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice in particular what's underlined up here. For I am speaking to those who know the law. He's writing to a church that's divided. On this side are Gentiles. We're, most of us are Gentiles. I, I know I'm a Gentile. Okay, 
And, and the Gentiles had been by themselves for four or five years. And finally, the edict had been lifted for the Jews to come back to Rome. And when they came back, the Jewish believers found themselves at odd with their Gentile brethren. And so Paul's addressing this conflict. And so Paul says to the Jewish side, if I can just kind of use this illustration, he says to the Jewish side, I'm speaking to you, to those of you who know the Torah. And with that, he wades in to an illustration right off the bat, one of these strange illustrations that Paul does. He wades into an illustration to try and demonstrate the relationship to the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And he uses marriage. Notice what he says. For example, there it is. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. We still believe that today. 2,000 years later. June's bound to me, I'm bound to her. And the only way for us to be unbound is for one of us to die. Okay? And so if June dies, I can get remarried. I've oftentimes told people that June's ruined me. 42 years of marriage, I can't imagine being unmarried. And so I've told people if June dies, there's going to be two registers at the funeral home. One for visitors and one for unmarried women who might be interested in an old preacher, all right? I've had people to say, that's horrible. At the funeral, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but at my age, I don't have a lot of time left. I've got to move quick. Paul understands the dynamic here. Notice, so then if she has a sexual relation with another man while her husband's still alive, she's an adulteress. If I do, I'm an adulterer. But if her husband dies, she released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. And so he uses this covenant relationship of marriage and he spiritualizes it to describe it as the covenant relationship that the Jews had with the law of Moses, or the covenant of Moses. Okay? So you see the illustration. He's taking a covenant that most of the Jews were a part of, marriage, and he uses it to illustrate the covenant that they're spiritually a part of, the law or the covenant of Moses. And so he uses the marriage covenant to illustrate the transition from the Mosaic to the Messianic covenant. Notice what he says. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. Now he's going to start getting into it. You died to the Torah through the body of Christ. When you died in baptism, you died to that first covenant. That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit of God, or for God. Now, fascinating transition he makes. In other words, he's still in the marriage example. And he says, you died. Now, one of the things I love about Paul is Paul will use an illustration, and then he gets it messed up. You know, the illustration here is the Jews died to the law, which set them free from being married to Moses. 
and gave them now the ability to be married to Christ and to have fruit from Christ. Kind of the concept of a married couple has children here, now you have children here. You have fruit that comes from that relationship. Now, if you've noticed Paul's argument where he gets it backwards is that if something happens to June, if June dies, she doesn't get to remarry. I get to remarry. <laughs> but here Paul says, you Jews who died, now you can remarry. And you're like, Paul, you've got the one remarrying wrong. <laughs> it's the person who's still alive. Paul's saying you're thinking too critically here. Pay attention to the illustration. That's what Paul would say to us. And the illustration simply is, is that these Jews can now be married to Christ and have fruit to Christ, good works for Christ. And then he launches into it. And boy, here we go. All right? Buckle down. Watch what he argues. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, in the carnal nature, which all of us have been a part of, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Notice the language up there. He wants us to bear fruit for life. But when we were married to the law, the Jews were, what it did was it bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, by dying to the Torah of Moses, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says, listen, there's something different that now guides us. We Jews who move from the Torah into the covenant with the Messiah, we, by the new way of the Spirit escape the old way of the written code. There's a new way of relating to God. And you need to underline this. If you have not underlined it, it is huge. I'll talk more about it here in just a moment. The Torah, the law of Moses, could not do what the Jews had both hoped and believed that it could. There was the problem. Here's these Jewish believers. What do we do with the Mosaic Covenant? What do we do with it? And Paul says, listen, it never did accomplish what you thought it could. I mean, it simply couldn't do it. Here's what he says over in Galatians. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. In other words, if rules could save, God would have given us rules that would have saved. But rule keeping can't save. Can't do it. You can't get enough laws. You can't legislate enough rules to help us to be right in the sight of God. It cannot be done. And so he says, what shall we say then? Is the law then sinful? I mean, if the law cannot save, then is the law sinful? And here's where Paul gets real deep. Watch what he says. Certainly not. But then here's where he goes. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was has it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Put very simple. If there wasn't laws, we wouldn't be lawbreakers. And by the way, the more laws you pass, 
the more we become lawbreakers. I was a freshman at Freed Hardman. I mean, I'd arrived for the first week there on campus. June and I were dating. She was still in high school. And so Friday afternoon, when my last class was over, I packed up. I hopped in my brand-new Ford Pinto. Some of y'all appreciate that. And I headed to Mississippi. Now, I'd, I'd never been to Henderson, Tennessee. I mean, this was a new experience for me. And I'm heading down 100 Highway outside of town, heading toward Bolivar, Tennessee, when all at once blue lights came on. And I thought, oh, no. I pull over. Police officer says, all right, sir, do you realize you were doing 40 miles an hour in a 15-mile zone? Y'all know what a 15-mile zone is, right? I didn't know that's where the school was. I had no knowledge there was a school outside of town. And so I was heading to see June. I wasn't looking for signs on the side of the road. And all at once, I'd gone into a school zone, and boy, they had pulled me over. And so I used the preacher card. I said, I'm a student at Freed Hardman studying to be a preacher. This is my first week on campus. I had no idea the school was out here. I am so sorry. And he let me go. I was a lawbreaker, but he let me go with just a warning. You see, I didn't know. And by the way, I never went 40 miles an hour through that zone ever again. I didn't know it was there. There's the problem with law. If God had never said, thou shalt not covet, Paul says, I would have never coveted. But once the law was put in place, man, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, the Hebrew writer said, no place would have been sought for another. What was wrong with the law of Moses? Was it the law? No. Paul's going to say the law was fantastic. Look at the text from Hebrews. But God found fault with us. Now the Jews, we, we obviously were not a part of that covenant. But God found fault with the people. Again, if you pass laws, all you end up with is a lot of lawbreakers. Don't you remember, and by the way, this is from the message. I love the way the message says this. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well, Paul says. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. I mean, the law is the will of God. It's beautiful. But notice, what happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the commandment into a temptation. Making a piece of forbidden fruit, going back to Genesis chapter 3, out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. And if we just stop for a second, we get it. Y'all ever seen that sign? Do you know that today psychologists tell us, don't put, do not touch. Just put caution, wet paint. Don't put, do not touch. Because you know what happens when you put, do not touch? You just touch. You've got to do it. I mean, I have got to touch it. And that's what happens when you have a law. I mean, your mom cooks cookies and says, now you can't eat these cookies until tomorrow. Now, what, what are you now thinking about? I want a cookie. And if mom goes to Walmart, guess what? I'm going to sneak me a cookie. 
There's the whole problem with this telling us not to do something. It creates the very desire to do it. Again, the message. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless. And I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself in all of that finery, I was fooled. I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong, so sin was pretty alive and I was stone dead. In other words, sin has this remarkable ability. Satan does. All you got to do is go and read Genesis 3. Our small group will be meeting here at the building tonight at 5, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 3. How did the serpent use the command of God to tempt Adam and Eve? That's what Paul's talking about. So sin was pretty alive. I was stone dead, but the law code itself is God's good and common sense. Each command, sane and holy counsel, it's not the law. The Ten Commandments are beautiful. The problem's me. The problem's you. You know, all you got to do is have someone to tell us, don't do that. And now the temptation comes to do it. So Paul says, what do we do? Did that which is good then become death to me? Was it the law that became death to me? He says, no. But nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, if you're scratching your head right now going, Leslie, you're not helping. I get it. Let me try to, though, illustrate what Paul's doing here. God knew we would fail. Law wasn't a shock to God that Israel disobeyed it. It's not a shock to him that we disobey it. In fact, before the creation of the world, Jesus was already the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. God knew how we would respond. But in order to deal with sin, he had to make sin just explode to the point of where we saw what are we going to do? Who are we going to turn to? How are we going to deal with this problem? And so the law was given, notice the last one, through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful and God would deal with it once and for all. Have you ever noticed how the crucifixion of Jesus did that? We celebrated communion just a few moments ago. But one of the things about the story of Jesus' crucifixion is that God allowed sin to bubble up until it literally came to a crescendo. I mean, sin became as utterly sinful as it could. And the way you see that's real simple. The trial of Jesus. Jesus is brought and put on trial. The Son of God, the creator of the universe. The one who created us, who formed us. We were created for him and by him, Paul says. And guess what we did to him? We put him on trial. But it's not we. It was his people. It was the Jewish people. The people that God had chosen through Abraham. They put him on trial. Now, of course, they eventually took him to Pilate, but Pilate was simply acting according to their will. They put him on trial. Not just they put him on trial, the priesthood put him on trial. 
The Sanhedrin was made up of priests, of Sadducees, of Pharisees, and it was led by the Sadducees, these priests, who put him on trial. They sent guards out to arrest him. And then when he finally comes to trial, guess who he has to face? The high priest. I don't know if you ever thought about this. The one person on earth who is supposed to represent God, the holiest person alive, now stands with the Son of God in front of him and looks at him and says, Blasphemy, crucify him. I mean, Satan had taken everything holy the people, the priesthood, and the high priest himself and made them utterly sinful. And they did to Jesus everything sin could do to an individual. And Jesus came out the other side. You see, that's the message that Paul's trying to get across. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but the problem is we're unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, I would love to tell you that Paul stops right there. Nope, he keeps going. I mean, he says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who is doing it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my carnal nature, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now if you're saying, whew, join the rest of us. I mean, Paul is just literally going back and forth. I want to do what's right, I can't do what's right. I don't want to do what's wrong, but that's what I end up doing. You know, over here I'm serving sin, over here I'm serving God. And man, it is just all absolutely crazy. And he says it has to be sin. Sin somehow has been personified in all of us. And by the way, Paul, when he's speaking here, is not talking as, as Paul. He's talking about a representative of mankind especially of the Jewish people. And he says, and the only way I know to describe it is there's this, this almost demon within me called sin. And that's what's doing it. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Romans 6, 6. Going back one chapter to last week, Paul says, listen, the only way to deal with this demon is to crucify it. And we know that in baptism... That's what happens. And so Paul's kind of reflecting on what he had just written over in chapter 6. You know, he says, listen, you got to deal with this carnal nature, this sinful demon that's within us. And so he ends up by saying, so I find this law at work. Here's what's going on. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. There's that demon. For in my inner being, up here, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul, what's going on? He says all of us experience civil war, constant battles. 
I mean, we've got good on one side, we've got evil on the other, and unfortunately, evil's winning. So what do we do? And here, here is what I want you to remember if you hear nothing else today. One of the things that we have done in at least my experience, may not be your experience, so if it's not your experience, God bless you. But my own personal experience in church is that we have basically minimized the two things in the text that Paul says changes everything. When we minimize one's personal relationship with Jesus, there's the first thing. Growing up in a church of Christ in North Mississippi, we never talked about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Talked about a relationship with God. Talked about all the laws that you had to keep to have that relationship with God. But a personal relationship with Jesus is something that the denominational world had, and therefore we couldn't have it. Now, that's my personal experience. may not have been yours. I had a brother walk in my office, he and his wife, one day, and he sat down. He was bothered because I was preaching a personal relationship with Jesus. And he said to me, he said, Les, he said, what is this personal relationship with Jesus you keep talking about? And so I looked at him and I said, well, this woman sitting right over here, what's your relationship with her? He said, well, that's my wife. I said, is that a personal relationship? Well, of course it's a personal relationship. I said, that's all I'm talking about. I said, I'm talking about a relationship you have with some, someone that unites you. I said, he said, well, what do you mean about having a personal relationship with Jesus? I said, let me put it very simply. Jesus is my king. I am his subject. Jesus is my Lord. I am his servant. Jesus is my master. I am his slave. Jesus is my savior. I am the saved. Jesus is my older brother. I am his younger brother. How many more illustrations do I need to give you? Because they go on and on and on and on and on. That's what I mean about a personal relationship. A personal relationship is when the teacher says to the student, follow me, and we follow him, and the Bible calls that discipleship. And there's no way to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and not have a personal relationship with him, even though we tried our best to. Now, that's the first problem. The second is when we minimize the indwelling and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I don't know about you, but growing up, we didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's what the Pentecostals had. And so we just downplayed the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit simply became this right here. That's what I was taught for years and years and years. The Bible is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Read it, and you have the Spirit in you. And can I tell you, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And when you take those two items... Jesus' personal relationship with us as our teacher, as our Lord, as our master, as our Messiah. You just add whatever you want to add to the list. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, what do you end up with? You end up simply with a trading of the Torah of the Old Testament with the Torah of the New Testament. And you have a similar set of rules that frustrates the daylights out of you because you know no one can keep them accurately. And that's what we did. And it's why people were never confident in their salvation. That's why we were always saying, I hope I'm good enough. And the truth was, you can't be good enough if you're living in a relationship with God based solely on law. Law cannot bring life. 
Look at what Paul says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Man, this civil war, I'm losing. Of course you're losing it. We all lose it. And the answer is, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is there a way out? Of course there's a way out. The way of the Spirit Romans 7, 6, the delivery of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what leads us through. So, I, so then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And of course, as he goes into chapter 8, he says, but I've been set free from that law of sin through the power of the Spirit of God. That's next week. Now... Can I tell you that one of our favorite scriptures always had it right? And we messed it up. At least I did. I can't speak for you. One of our favorite texts is Acts 2.38. One of the most powerful scriptures in all the Bible. Day of Pentecost. Birthday of the church. Bringing in of the new covenant. Preaching of the gospel in its fullness for the very first time. I mean, you've got everything coming together in Acts chapter 2. And when Peter gets to the end of his sermon, the people cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter gives the most amazing answer. If we had just focused on the right parts of the verse. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now that's where we focus. That's where I focused growing up. Repent and be baptized, especially on the baptism part. Baptism part became everything. Do you know that when Peter said this, the baptismal part was the least of the parts? You see, every Jew there was going to be baptized that day. It was Pentecost. They were on the way to the temple. Before you go into the temple, you've got to immerse yourself. Every one of them were going to be baptized that day. The question is, are not, is not are you going to be baptized, but into whom are you going to be baptized? Are you going to be baptized into Moses... Are you going to be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah? It was that pronouncement that made baptism here on the day of Pentecost the most amazing thing in the world. And of course we talk about the 3,000 who obeyed it, but how many thousand rejected it? Rejected it because you don't get forgiveness of sins through baptism. You get forgiveness of sins by going into the temple and offering an animal for sacrifice. Hebrew writer says, you've got to make up your mind. You want to go bulls and goats? Can't take away sin. Jesus' blood, once and for all. And so he says, you trust Jesus? You, you follow Jesus? You make him Lord? You make him Messiah? You're forgiven. And then, of course, the second part, because this is where the verse always ended when I was growing up. But it doesn't end. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive a gift that John calls the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us, the one who is our helper, the one who is there to assist us, the one who sanctifies us, the one who bears fruit in our life, the one who walks and calls us to walk with him. And brothers and sisters, when you deny the presence of the Spirit, then what do you do? You quench him. Exactly the thing Paul says, don't you dare do, is quench the Spirit. I'm not talking about Pentecostalism. 
I'm talking about walking in the Spirit, recognizing that God's given us this gift. Just like Ezekiel said he would in order to help us to become what law couldn't help us be. But what the forgiveness and and discipleship and personal relationship with Jesus and what the gift of the Holy Spirit will do is what he offers us. That's why baptism is important. Because of who we're baptized into, what happens, and what we receive. I don't know where you are today. If you're tired of fighting a civil war, if you're tired of fighting right and wrong, and you say, you know what, it's time for me to become a follower of Jesus the Messiah. I want to be one of his disciples. I want to have my sins washed away. And I want to receive that gift of the Spirit that's going to transform me into his likeness. If you've not experienced that, what are you waiting for? Experience it right now. As together we stand and sing.